This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The Center for Reinventing Public Education, located in Seattle, Washington, is a highly respected think tank that focuses on school reform. It's known by its initials CRPE, which is too hard to pronounce. So I'm going to call it SERPE. So excuse me, Center for Reinventing Public Education, but today you are SERPE. So on April 8th, SERPE uh, issued a report on a survey that is tracking how well school districts are making the transition during the coronavirus pandemic from the classroom to online learning. So far, the answer is, well, not very well. So only 25% of the 80-some school districts for which they now have data are providing students with instruction on the school's curriculum, only 25%. And so we're about four weeks now into the new world of learning online. Well, the person who I turn to for advice on this topic is Joseph Olchewski, who was the superintendent of the Seattle Public Schools between 1999 and 2003, the very city in which the Center for Reinventing Public Education is located. Uh, and I want to ask him about the practical challenges of responding to a crisis like this uh, and get the, get the feedback from somebody who really has been in the hot spot. So uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Superintendent uh, Olchewski, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. So Joseph, um, before we turn to the report, let me first ask you, what was the most dramatic, unexpected event that occurred during your superintendency in Seattle? Yeah, I certainly had my share. And, uh, you know, to be a superintendent, particularly be a big super, uh, big city superintendent, you got to be prepared for the unexpected. Um, you know, certainly memorable is the uh, 2001 Seattle earthquake um, that hit during the school day. So, uh, you know, it was, a, I forget what day of the week, but maybe a Tuesday, Wednesday, and, you know, everything's going well. And, and all of a sudden, nothing's going well. And uh, 50,000 kids all around the city and 100 sites around the city all of a sudden are huddled under their desks. And we don't know uh, which buildings have collapsed, if any. We don't know if anyone's hurt uh, anywhere around the city. We've got 7,000 employees. And, uh, and I'm in our headquarters building, and we have several hundred people there that have their own anxieties. So, um, yeah, you, you, you do mobilize. Uh, and quickly you have to respond and quickly obviously you got to stay focused on the kids and on your employees to make sure they're safe. But, who do you, you know, turn to first for help? I mean you can't do it all by yourself so who do you turn to first for help? Yeah I, I you know you got every school district has an operations team and and they really become uh, critical. Uh, I felt as a superintendent my biggest role was to be the chief communicator so I you know kind of deputized uh, by COO and a couple of other people and to, to go manage all this. And I had to go um, get on the phone and quickly do uh, media inquiries because literally every parent in the city is trying to figure out, is their kid safe and what they should do? And, um, you know, a big early decision I made was, look, we're not going to release the kids. Um, you know, we're not going to close the schools because if we said, okay, the kids are now released, every parent in the city would be scrambling and it would just compound and you'd have a traffic jam trying to get there. So 
um, you know, keeping the kids safe and then parents could get there when they could get there to get their kids um, was a, a kind of the critical early decision um, that we were just going to shelter in place and, and it took the temperature down. But, you know, kind of highlight a point uh, that I think is relevant here is uh, having a coordinated response and communicating often and regularly to parents is just a critical role that a superintendent and that a district has to do. And, you know, we're blessed in today's world with social media, with, uh, uh, with radio and TV, with uh, email, you, you know, there's so many more, uh, you know, I didn't have social media in 2001, so I couldn't communicate that way. But I did a lot of radio interviews and I did a lot of TV interviews on the spot just to, to get the word out. So did you ever deal with the school closure, snowstorm or, or some, yeah. some weather thing? Right, despite the, the history of Seattle and rain, uh, you know, we'd have snow. And Paul, you and I are both from Minnesota and, you know, we, we think of uh, measurements of snow in feet. Uh, there are two <laughs> inches, two inches of snow in Seattle because of all the hills in town uh, is really a big problem because the buses can't get up the hills to pick up and drop off the kids. So I had my set of school closures for, uh, um, for snow. I had uh, one that I had to close the schools midday district-wide for a windstorm um that came through we certainly unfortunately had our share of kind of active shooters um where we'd close you know schools in a particular part of town because there'd be some sort of uh you know shooter uh in the neighborhood um so yeah i mean it kind of comes with the turf of being a superintendent what's what's unique here though i have to say and um you know i don't envy any superintendent today's world is is uh, number one it's universal Every school district, every school in America is going through this all at once. Um, you know, if you think about the various closures we've had, if it's been Katrina or if it's been Hurricane Sandy, if it's been, you know, other, you know, earthquakes in California, all those sort of things, they've always been localized. This is universal. Every school, everywhere, rural, urban, suburban, everybody's kind of confronting it. And then second, the unknown duration of this. You know, I knew when an earthquake hit, okay, I could identify um, what schools were damaged, what schools couldn't open the next day, but the other, ni you know, other 99 schools could open. And, and um, you know, we knew what the duration was going to be, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, okay, you know, it might, this might take a few weeks to get back up and running. But this one, um, you know, uh, it's so unclear when we're going to be back in operation. And that unknown of duration, um, I think, is really a confounding reality that, that school districts and superintendents are. So what do you think superintendents are anticipating? Well, uh, I think if, if I were a superintendent and my friends that are superintendents, you're doing scenario planning. You know, uh, I saw on the Education Next website today that, that you, know, you guys have laid out what the current announced reopening date is state by state. Um, you know, there, are, there are some, uh, one state, I think it's Montana, that's uh, April 13th. We know that's not gonna happen. The most common is April 4th, and the second most common is next school year, um, state by state. So, I mean, it really is sort of, you know, a range right now. And uh, if I were a superintendent, I'd be saying, okay, let's, let's hope the optimistic case happens and we open in May. 
what are we going to do then? And then what's the scenario that says we're going to open in August? And then what's the, the, the doomsday, you know, the disaster scenario that says we're still um, uh, sheltered at home in August um, and we've got to go online through the first semester? And, you know, those are three very different realities, how you serve kids, how you deliver instruction, um, you know, budgeting, delivery operations, logistics, systems, all of those, you've got to be prepared. Because anybody who says they know what the next few months are going to hold, uh, I wouldn't trust their opinion. So you really have to be simultaneously be planning for multiple options. Correct. Absolutely. Because whichever one happens is going to happen, you know, without much notice. And you're going to quickly have to, especially if they, if you can reopen May 1st, that's going to be, you got to be ready for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, people give you some tolerance, but, uh, you know, these are people want their kids back in school and rightfully so. And, uh, you know, if May 4th is your day, then you better deliver and you better have every one of your school buildings open and a teacher in every room and, and uh, you know, lunch ready to be served. And that's a pretty high bar um, in terms of uh, what, um, what you've got to do. I mean, I, I would say um, there's an, a, uh, you know, I'm impressed uh, that we haven't had more, you know, serious problems in the education world. Um, people have rallied. Um, I think there are significant differences district to district in what the responses have been. Uh, Mike Casserly uh, has an interview, I think it's also, I think it's on Education Next, um, talking about what big city school districts did. And a number of them started planning early in January. And, you know, they kind of got a jump start in March on, on, on this. But others are, you know, the kids aren't back in school yet, um, you know, even on an online basis. So, you know, there is, there is significant differences district to district, school to school here. So what is it reality. that, uh, you know, according to the uh, SERPI report, only 25% are really providing instruction on their curriculum. Otherwise, they're just doing stuff, uh, sending home packets of material and, and, you know, trying to come up with something. So yeah. what are the practical problems that a school superintendent faces if they're really going to try to change the whole vehicle of instruction from in the classroom to over the internet. Yeah, and do it quickly and do it uh, across all grade levels, all schools, all students. I mean, that's a, that's a heavy lift. And even if you had, you know, even if let's say you were really forward looking and, and you really uh, plan for a month, that's still a heavy lift to move everyone to that uh, environment. So the SERPI report didn't surprise me, Paul. Um, you know, my general observation is, is this is a checkerboard situation. This is, this is a place where state vary significantly in terms of how they've responded. Districts have varied significantly in terms of how they've responded. And I thought the, the SERPI report did a great job of laying that out. I mean, some, some clearly have responded very quickly and very strongly. Others, it's we're probably two, three weeks away. Individual. What would it have taken to have done it to do it the best possible way? Yeah, what, I, what I think the resources that you would have had to put in place to have been able to make the adaptation within a week or so. Yeah, 
you would have had to have number one you would have had to have a clear kind of digital curricular instructional framework ready to roll out and that's that's a lot that's a lot to have in place to have your curriculum online to have some sort of learning management system ready for students to log on okay that's that's a technical um, challenge in and of itself second um, you've got to have internet access and hardware for every kid in the system. Um, we're seeing, you know, maybe in some upper income districts, that's, that's not a heavy lift. I'll tell you, any school district uh, with a, a significant low income population, that's a very heavy lift. And, you know, there's been some interesting media reports about, you know, districts buying tens of thousands of Chromebooks and distributing them. And, uh, you know, that's great. And now you've got to get the kids used to, to that. Um, so I think you've got the, that the curricular challenge, you've got the hardware challenge, then you've got your teachers, many of whom, many, many of whom have never taught online. And this is a place where the districts that have kind of a young teaching core are at an enormous advantage because those, they're closer to digital natives. But if you've got a teaching core that are in their 50s and 60s, and you know this is this is not that they're going to close school on Friday. Just turning on the computer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you can't you can't close school on Friday and open Monday online and expect the teachers. And uh, and then and then finally and most importantly is 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 connecting with the kids out in the field. And I just heard an anecdote from uh, somebody uh, who's on my staff said uh, that the high school teacher that one of his children has uh, is doing okay, or the high school teachers, mm -hmm. but middle schools, the child is in middle school, just, it's just no instruction at all. So is there some likelihood that it's gonna vary by grade level? Oh, and I would even take it one step beyond that, Paul. When I said checkerboard, yeah, we can, we can see the checkerboard at the state level. You can see the checkerboard at the district level. Go another step down at the school by school level. If you've got a principal that, that is assertive, understands it, uh, aggressively leads uh, to a digital, a digital change in the school, those, you know, there are schools that have embraced it. There are schools that haven't. And then finally, classroom by classroom, Paul. I mean, I'm talking to my friends. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's a, a principal at a uh, school in uh, Atlanta, public schools. And she has two kids. And, you know, we're really close to the family. And she has, you know, she has a fourth grader and a fifth grader. The fourth grader is getting fantastic instruction. The fifth grader isn't. It's in the same school. And so, I mean, we really are the differential, the checkerboard that's out there at every level. And uh, so when I look at the SERPI report, right, I thought there was an interesting data that it shows what the status was, what was it, two weeks ago versus, you know, today. And, you know, clearly there's a transition going on. And school districts are responding. There's definitely laggards. But um, the gains in, you know, uh, districts and schools that are moving so that you've got, you know, internet access, you have instruction, you have curricular materials online, you have live instruction, and you have monitoring, definitely going the right direction. But do I believe we're going to get to 75%? No, 
I don't think we're going to get there in the next month, but uh, starting from flat zero, we're moving in the right direction. So some people say that for equity purposes, you probably shouldn't even be doing this because you're just creating greater inequities than we already have in our society. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that concern? Well, well, I'm certainly not the one that says, let's hold everybody back. Um, and you know, we, 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 if we can deliver it, we should deliver it to as many kids as we can. There are some very difficult, uh, um, statistics out there. I think Huffington Post had an article about school districts simply not being able to find kids. You know, some districts are reporting that five to 10% of their kids literally aren't responding at all to email, to teacher outreach, to not logging on to their internet, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These kids literally are just at home doing nothing, you know, sort of thing. But, but your concern is- are chronic uh, absenteeism cases. It's a variation of chronic absenteeism. Um, but uh, we should absolutely, um, you know, be concerned about this equity issue. And I do think the districts that are handing out Chromebooks are that. I think as an individual teacher, you can be more assertive of reaching out to your low income and disadvantaged students. I think serving um, special ed students, especially severe, severely disabled students is gonna be really challenging in this environment. Um, and uh, and so English, how, do, how yeah. do you even begin to think about it? What, what do yeah. you do with your special ed population? Yeah, I think number one, let's be clear, the parents have to play a big role here under every scenario. I mean, this, we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, the instruction that can be delivered online is good, but it does not replace face-to-face instruction and the ability of a a skilled teacher to be in front of a a needy student. let's, Let's not pretend there's a, a quality parity across that. Um, I think you've got to expect parents to be involved and more involved uh, than they have been. I mean, the parents are at home. But uh, no, I do think I, I don't have an easy answer for the severely disabled students, um, for the students that maybe have some behavioral issues. You know, are they going to be able to stay online? Um, but I do think parents are going to have to play a much bigger role. And for some parents, that's, that's a challenge. Um, well, then, of course, uh, parents may be home, but many of them are still working. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not like they can just sort of forget their job. Uh, yeah. Well, Paul, you raised an interesting issue earlier that I wanted to go back to on this, on this theme of checkerboard here. Um, you know, I think if, when I've talked to, you know, my friends who are teachers, um, especially the high school teachers, they are, their instruction has moved online, I don't want to say seamlessly, but with much less disruption. And they've been able to give instruction, they've been able to give assignments, the high school kids have been able to get online. And, you know, these are, these are teachers that are teaching a fair number of low income and disadvantaged kids, and they're still getting Um, quality instruction. The further you go down the age range, the further you go down the age range, uh, I think the less effective online instruction is is showing itself. And particularly when you get into the elementary range, um, you know, where I'm seeing, um, again, talking to parents that have 
kindergartners or first graders or second graders. You know, the school might be providing some worksheets, might be providing some interesting activities. I know there's a couple of districts that are moving to, you know, instruction on TV, um, you know, public television and those sort of things, um, delivering apps, but it clearly is not a traditional classroom type structure. So um, I think the, the further down, you know, in elementary grades, the less effective online instruction is. At high school, I'm reasonably, you know, maybe I want to, I don't want to overstate it and call myself optimistic, but I'm certainly not nearly as pessimistic about um, uh, what's going on at the high school level. I think we are um, showing that, uh, you know, online instruction can clearly be a part of, um, you know, what in, 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 in an effective academic program is for a kid. Uh, the report also says, the SERPI report also says that the charter school networks that they've been able to uh, get in touch with are reporting a much quicker turnaround. Mm -hmm. That is to say they're scaling up much more rapidly. They're about half of them now are, are providing, uh, are contacting the students instead of a, a third and, and uh, various other indicators are pointing in the same direction. Do you think that there's a story there that the charter sector is able to move more quickly just because it's a more nimble sector or? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, yeah, maybe. I, you know, I have some skepticism, Paul, to be honest. Uh, you know, the charter schools do want to tell a good story, right? Because they're, they're in a world where they need to be um, reauthorized on a regular basis. Um, you know, I'd be interested to know, um, you know, it looked like from the SERPI report, they've gone to a number of the very strong, the strongest of the charter networks. Um, I would be also interested in seeing some of the smaller networks or the individual standalone charters that aren't, aren't uh, don't have the benefit of a big network. Um, so I, I certainly do not want to paint with a broad brush that there's a that, that uh, you know, charters as a class of schools um, are performing better. I think, you know, this data certainly says this group of charter systems seem to be, but yeah, it could you know, be a highly selected group of charter schools too. Yeah. And it's a little self-reported. It's a little right. self-reported performance. So I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, the jury's out on that from my standpoint, let, I, you know, I, I, I don't think we need, we need to, you know, kind of make that distinction now. I think you know the focus on the kids and sort of the services they're getting, because we do have we have enormous gaps as as, as we've already discussed. You know, special ed kids, low income kids, um, uh, you know, kids that uh, the chronic absentee, the the, the de facto absentees. Um, th there's a bunch of kids out there that are not getting anything close to a quality education today, and and that's that's deeply concerning. So one of the other topics that comes up is, uh, are the unions giving full support to moving online or are they creating problems for superintendents? Have you, I haven't seen very much on this. I've, I've seen a few examples of saying we need, we can't ask teachers to do things they haven't been asked to do previously, but I don't know if that's just a couple of horror stories or whether that's a more general phenomenon. You have any? Yeah. I have, I, I mean, I don't have anything, you know, tremendously on the ground on that, but I would say I had two pieces of 
you know, I, I, I dare say happy news or certainly silver linings that I think are worth commenting on. One silver lining is I do believe, you know, individual teachers, teachers unions, staffs broadly defined at the schools that have, have been, you know, resistant, skeptical of moving to digital instruction and distance learning and all those sort of things. You know, I have not heard big pushback. I have not heard the, you know, we're not, we're not going there. And I have not heard, and, um, you know, the report from the Council of Great City Schools doesn't, does not highlight this. You know, and you think that would be uh, sort of in the public domain if you saw resistance. I, you know, one of the things I love about educators and teachers in particular, if, if, the, if they are, they're in the profession because they're concerned about kids and in a place where either you're going to teach online or the kid isn't going to be taught. Teachers do rally. They do. They are motivated and God bless them. Um, you know, again, checkerboard, there's some teachers that are doing a good job and some teachers that aren't, but I don't think anyone is saying, you know, heck no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And, and I think that's, that's a, that's a silver lining in this. I think, um, people have rallied in a crisis. And then the second silver lining and, and our, our mutual friend, Paul, uh, Andrea Schlieker, I, I always mispronounce his last name, Schleicher. Schleicher, I think, is Schleicher, the, yeah, what Schleicher. I hear from my German friends. So. Yes, exactly. He That's had the right way. Yeah, and and uh, he for for your listeners, he's a, a you know a big thought leader internationally. Well, he heads oh, up the PISA, you know, which does these international uh, testing of students. So he has a correct for the educational systems around the world. Yeah. yeah, he had a he had a great quote in an article I saw, which was, uh, you know, we collectively uh, have been pushing digital transformation in education for a decade now, and uh, with very limited traction and very spotty traction, um, you know, a couple of success stories, but not much. And he said, we've had 10, 10 years of reform in 10 days. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Is this going to be a, a vast boost for digital learning? Oh, no question. Absolutely no question. We, when, whenever the world comes, you know, school districts reopen, I, 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 I dare, I'm not going to say it's going to go back to normal. When we, when we reopen schools, I think high school is going to be very different. I think, I think parents teachers, kids are gonna see the value of online instruction, um, particularly at the high school level. I think digital resources- And also the college level, you know. Oh, for sure. Is good. In fact, this could be very damaging to many institutions as people say, you know what, I can get a college education online. Oh, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So no, I, uh, oh, I think at the higher ed, which we have not talked about, you know, in many ways, this is has codified now online learning um, at the college level. But for K-12, um, I think high school instruction, I think every school now is going to say, you know, this isn't that bad. Let's offer, you know, AP calculus online. And I think parents that before would have said, no, I want my kid in the school building. I want a teacher in front of them. Um, they're going to say, no, I'm, I'm okay. I've seen what it can do. I think at the elementary and uh, middle school level, maybe more digital resources are going to be pushed out to kids. 
Um, I don't think we're going to make a heavy move to, to, you know, kind of distance learning, digital, you know, online internet instruction at the elementary and certainly at the lower middle school level. But I think, um, you know, this is, this is, I think Andreas is on to something that this is a cathartic moment. You know, disequilibrium forces people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Well, and, some people have told me the opposite though, Joseph. I and mm -hmm. just let one of the report that out there that uh, some people say the experience is going to be so bad for so many parents, they'll say never again. I don't want anything to do with this digital learning environment. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, and, and again, I mean, I, I'm, my overall theme here is the checkerboard. There is going to be some bad experiences and there's going to be some bad performances. But I think overall, again, I will focus on the high schools. I do think um, you know, if you think about a school, a, a smaller high school, a rural high school, that there might only be three kids in the whole high school in the senior class that are in a position to take calculus. So the school wouldn't offer calculus. Well, offer the online, offer a, a, an online calculus course. And I think parents are going to say, if my option is not give my kid calculus or have them take it online, I'll do it because at least I've seen already what it is. Um, so I think there is an exposure here. Are there going to be bad examples? For sure. Unquestionably, there's going to be bad examples. There'll be teachers that don't make the transition. There'll be schools that don't make the transition. But in total, system-wide, you know, what, we're 51 million kids, um, you know, which means something like, uh, what, 18, 19,000 kids and 18 million kids in high school. Um, a lot of them are going to have positive experiences in learning here. And I think the schools are going to see it and the teachers are going to see it. So, well, even if it's only 10, 15%, that's millions of kids. Correct. Correct. So, so no, I think, I think Andreas is onto something here. I think the fact that teachers are rallying and we haven't, you know, we haven't seen, um, people stuck in the mud saying, I'm not going to do any of this. You know, if you, you, you can look at, uh, um, there was a, I live in the DC area and I think it was Prince George's County every, every day, the kid, uh, the parents drive by and pick up their lunch and pick up their learning packets for the day. And the teachers are outside waving to the kids and, you know, God bless them. That's, that's what you rally, what you, that's what you do to rally in a crisis. And, uh, I, I, I give, uh, the teachers unions and the, more importantly, the individual teachers, a lot of props for that. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question, and that is all of this assumes that the money is there to pay for yeah. whatever is going to be. But the financial resources for schools is going to be dramatically reduced in the coming yeah. months. So what's, how are superintendents going to deal with that reality? Well, I think a few things. I mean, it was, you know, remember, school districts really couldn't, uh, suspend their operations or send the kids home on their own. And the primary reason is they couldn't send them home until their funding sources permitted them, which is typically a big chunk of their funding sources is the state. That's why the states, typically the governor or maybe the superintendent of public instruction made the call to close schools. Um, so they have approval to get funding for the rest of this year. Uh, generally. So I don't think there's going to be a big budget gap for this year. But if you're planning for 2021 school year, next school year, 
uh, as I said earlier, you have to be scenario planning because uh, your your state is going to go is is going to be, you know, dramatically reducing its revenue in a lot of states. It's a question how much federal aid it's going to get. Correct. In a lot of states, 50% of this, I know in Washington state, 50% of the state's budget is K-12 education. And uh, so if they, you know, if they're shrinking, it's going to trickle down. Now I will say, and to, to my point about the digital transition, you know, sort of Andrea's, you know, 10 years of reform in 10 days comment. Um, I would say digital instruction can be lower cost. Um, you can, um, uh, you know, an individual teacher can serve more students uh, effectively. Um, so you can create some economies. I think uh, waivers from class load. You know, if, if you have a teacher's contract that says you have to have 25 to 1, um, absolutely positively. Well, if you're doing online classes, maybe we can change that. I mean, I think there's going to have to be some uh, legal and contractual flexibility, some waivers that are put in place here. But I do think the the number, you know, I mean, I had to deal with 5% budget cuts, 7% budget cuts. Um, you know, if we're talking about a 15% budget cut in a year, 20% budget, these are huge numbers, Paul. And uh, it, it is going to have an enormous effect. And I don't think, if you're back to your question, if you're, if you're a superintendent, you don't know what to plan for today. So you, you, you have to have a, okay, I'm gonna be down 5%, I'm gonna be down 10, I'm gonna be down 20. And, and, and then whenever your powers that be, whenever your funding sources tell you um, what the funding level is going to be, then you come out and say, okay, I've, here is my plan. But anybody that's only generating one plan is completely making a mistake. I, I doubt any superintendent would be doing that. I think you've got to be sitting there, and if you're a CFO of a school district, you're, you're all about scenario planning. Right so I, the story is flexibility, build scenarios, uh, be ready to respond quickly, uh, thank you, uh, Joseph, for joining me. I've been speaking with Joseph Olchewski, former superintendent of the Seattle Public Schools from 1999 to 2003. Uh, thank you, Joseph, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.